now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for justice professionals and anyone interested in learning more about forensic science, innovative technology, current research, and actionable strategies to improve the criminal justice system. In episode two of the 2020 R&D season, Just Science interviews Dr. Heather Garvin, Associate Professor of Anatomy at Des Moines University, about her work with Osteoid, an online resource for species identification of skeletal remains. Approximately 30 to 40% of cases involving skeletal remains received by forensic anthropologists end up being animal bones. Dr. Garvin and her team are working on a free, practical, and user-friendly online tool to help forensic anthropologists, death investigators, crime scene personnel, and law enforcement identify the species of skeletal remains. Tune in as she discusses being a forensic anthropologist, the driving need behind osteoid, and her work cataloging bone specimens for this project. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. Megan Grabenauer. Hello and welcome to Just Science. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Grabenauer with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence, which is a program of the National Institute of Justice. Today our guest is Dr. Heather Garvin, who is currently an Associate Professor of Anatomy at Des Moines University, where she teaches medical students, conducts human skeletal research, and conducts forensic anthropology cases for the state of Iowa. Heather, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So to start us off, I'm curious how you ended up as a professor. What did your career path look like? So I started off in undergrad. Um, I liked science. Um, and actually, I had watched a lot of stuff on Jane Goodall. And I thought I wanted to be Jane Goodall. Um, lo and behold, um, I started as a zoology major because I thought that's what Jane Goodall was. And actually, she's a primatologist, which falls under anthropology. Um, and so I learned that midway through my undergraduate career and was able to then dual degree in anthropology and zoology. And as I was doing that, I also began um, volunteering at the Human ID Lab there at the University of Florida. Um, and I started working with skeletal remains and got really interested in what we could tell from skeletal remains. So what is a Human ID Lab? What do they do there? So a Human ID Lab, that is the, um, it's the CA Pound Human ID Lab at the University of Florida. It's a forensic anthropology lab. Um, so forensic anthropologists are experts on the human skeleton. And we'll work for medical legal practitioners to help identify if their skeletal remains, who that person is, and the circumstances around their death. So after the undergrad, though, I wasn't sure what to do with an undergraduate degree. And one of the graduate students in the lab said, you should go and get a master's degree. And um, so that's what I did. I went and got a master's degree in forensic and biological anthropology from Mercyhurst College. And from there, learned that I enjoyed teaching as well. So then went on for a PhD in functional anatomy and evolution at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. So with your current position, is there a large teaching component to it? There is. At my current position at Des Moines University, um, I actually teach anatomy to medical students. So it's not as much anthropology. It does include skeletal anatomy, 
um, in the anatomy that I teach them. And I do have an elective course on forensic osteology, but really the anthropological aspect of what I do right now is researching casework. I used to teach anthropology and forensic anthropology to undergrad and grad students at Mercyhurst University before taking on this new position. So you're primarily doing research and casework now then? Uh, with the anatomy teaching. How did the cases get referred to you? How do you get involved in cases? Are you associated with a specific law enforcement agency? So I am. I have a contract with the um, state of Iowa um, as a forensic anthropology consultant and I was able to apply for that because I'm a board certified forensic anthropologist. So your bio states that you became a diplomat of the American Board of Forensic Anthropology in 2017. Can you talk a little bit more about um, the ABFA and what your involvement in that organization has been? Yeah, so the ABFA, the American Board of Forensic Anthropology, is the one certifying body that we have in the United States for forensic anthropology. So if you want to be a board certified forensic anthropologist, you need to go through them. In order to get board certified, you have to have your PhD, have case experience and training, and submit a lot of information about your education, your training, case reports, and then sit for both a practical and a written exam. And if you pass those portions, then you can become a diplomat. So a diplomat just means that you are board certified, that you're part of that American Board of Forensic Anthropology then. Are there any particular initiatives that you've worked on for the ABFA or future initiatives that you're hoping to be a part of? So I do help out a little bit um, when they're forming questions for the annual board exam or validating questions for that exam. Um, but my role so far has just been external. I'm not, I don't actually sit on the board. Okay. But you do help shape what that exam looks like for future forensic anthropologists who wanted to become board certified? Yeah, I mean, it, forensic anthropology is a very small field. Um, there are, I'm, I am the 117th person to ever be board certified. And that's, that's a surprisingly small number. It is, it's a very small field. And I would say there's probably approximately 90 actually active board certified individuals um, that maybe aren't retired or, or so forth. Um, so when it comes to our board exam, they do reach out to a lot of practitioners to see what methods you think are important, you know, what testing criteria are you using and should we include on this exam. So when you get brought in on a case, what kind of information is it that they're hoping you're able to provide to them? Each case is a case by case. So once in a while, say a hunter's out in the woods and they come across some skeletal remains, they might first contact me with pictures and say, is this human or non-human? And then if it is human, I may go out to that scene and help with the search and recovery for additional remains there. And then once we bring them back to the lab, say they're completely skeletonized, they don't know who that individual is. Um, I can run some analyses on the bone and give them an estimate of sex, age, ancestry, stature, something to help them narrow down their missing persons files when they're looking for this individual. If there's any kind of previous trauma that's healing, any kind of pathologies. And then we can also provide information about the circumstances of death. So is there any trauma, sharp force, blunt force? Is there any burning to the bones? And even after that person died and was left at that scene, what happened after that? Did rodents gnaw on the bone, carnivores scavenge them? Were they moved? Did it look like they decomposed in that area? So we're there to provide as much information as we can about those remains, usually to the medical examiner or the coroner, who then is using that to decide the manner and cause of death and the identity of that individual. So are those determinations pretty much based on visual inspection of the skeletal remains, or do you have any 
specialized analytical tools, chemistry type things that you're using on them for analysis? Yeah, so it's not like TV. <laughs> we don't have very many <laughs> fancy tools when it comes to forensic anthropology. A lot of it is based on measurements that we're taking. Um, some of it is visually scoring, so sex traits that we see in the skull. You know, your mastoid process behind your ear is a big muscle marking. Is it large? Is it small? Will help tell you whether you have a male or a female there. We will look at some things under a microscope, you know, especially if they're potentially cut marks, um, to analyze the shape and size of those cut marks. And some forensic anthropologists do uh, histological examinations. So if you look at the bone structure microscopically, um, there's a thing called osteons, and you can count them potentially for age or use them to determine whether human or non-human remains are there. But majority is just gross examination and measurements and running them through equations to come up with estimates. Is there anything you think is particularly important for newer forensic anthropology researchers or professionals looking to get into the field? Any advice that you would give to them? Try to get as much experience as you can. If it's something that you think you want to do an undergraduate, um, reach out to their summer short courses, there's field schools, if there's any opportunities at your school to get involved. And you're probably going to need some graduate school education. So start thinking ahead about a attending a master's program or a PhD program in that field. All right, so we're here this week at the American Academy of Forensic Sciences annual meeting in Anaheim, California, and you presented a presentation entitled Osteoid, a new forensic tool, developing a practical online resource for species identification of skeletal remains. That presentation was part of the NIJ Forensic Science R&D Symposium. If listeners are interested in watching the archived recording of that presentation, it can be found on ForensicCOE.org or also the landing page for this episode. So before we get into the details of your project, are there other researchers that you would like to acknowledge? Yes, yeah, so while I'm the PI on the project, I do have two co-PIs on the project. So Rachel Dunn, uh, she's an associate professor of anatomy at Des Moines University, and she's a mammalian paleontologist. So she's an expert when it comes to mammal and faunal and animal remains, which is important on this project. Um, and my second co-PI is Sabrina Schultz. Uh, she's a biological anthropologist and a curator at the Smithsonian Institution um, over in Washington, D.C. And so we've collected a lot of our data from the museum over there at the Smithsonian, both photographic and measurements, and she's been overseeing student work over on that side. Can you give us just an overview, big picture, of what the project is, what the, the purpose of it is, and what you're hoping to achieve? Yeah, so as a forensic anthropologist, about 30% of the time where I'm contacted about potential human skeletal remains, they actually turn out to be non-human, meaning they're animal bones. Sometimes they'll send them to me through text messages or emails. And as a forensic anthropologist, I'm an expert in the human skeleton. So I can usually take a look at these pictures and say within a few minutes, 100% not human. And so then they know that they don't need to secure the scene, they don't need to do more searches, you don't need to stop construction at that site. But they always follow up with the question, well then what is it? And that's a little bit harder to answer um, because I'm not an expert in every single animal's skeleton. So a single bone that comes from a pig um, might be difficult to identify. And so there are some tools out there. Some forensic anthropologists are lucky and they have a comparative collection. So they have a bunch of animal skeletons they can go to and actually compare that bone and decide what it is. Those are time consuming and expensive. It's amazing how much a pig skeleton costs. I actually just spent, um, I think it was almost $1,000 on a pig skeleton for my lab. And 
Otherwise, there's a few books out there. The books can also be expensive and you kind of need to know what species you're going to when you're flipping through the books and photographs may or may not be the greatest in them. So we really lack resources for identifying these non-human remains. And I happened to come across an avian osteology webpage where they had bird bones. And what you could do is you could put in just the length of the bone that you have. And from that length, it would tell you what potential species that bird was. And that to me was awesome. And I thought to myself, why can't we expand that beyond birds to all the animals we generally encounter in forensics and use the measurements to help narrow down the potential species that we could then look at really high quality photographs of those species and make those identifications. To your knowledge, is this the first time anyone's tried to create a resource like this? There is a website out there that has animal bones um, where you can pick the species and they have certain photographs of certain elements. Um, the search engine doesn't work the best, so I was having issues using it. it wasn't very helpful to me. And it didn't incorporate that measurement aspect, so nothing to narrow down what species you might be looking at. As you mentioned, your work involves creating this new online resource that can help improve that process of species identification. So what does the workflow look like now? Without this resource in place, what are the steps that have to be taken? So it depends on the case. Um, once in a while, the law enforcement will contact the medical examiner's office. The medical examiner's office will then generally contact me. If they have clear photographs, um, I might be able to do it from photographs, or at least tell them it's not human. If they want more species, I might have to ask them for more photographs to determine the species and different angles. Um, once in a while, they'll actually drive the bones all the way into the medical examiner's office, so using time and money to get there or call me into the office to look at these bones just for me to say, that's a deer tibia or a deer femur. So it can be streamlined and with this web tool, law enforcement will be able to use it if they're at the scene and decide right then and there, hey, it's, this is definitely not human, it looks to be uh, a bear humerus for example, or the death investigators can use it. So they won't have to call in those extra resources and really get an immediate response on that species identification. So where are you in the project? So we are right in the middle of the project right now. Um, we've been working on this for a year um, and we've been collecting a lot of metric data, so a lot of measurements, right? Because for this to work, we have to, go to have a good representation of bone sizes for all these species. And we're including 28 species on this first go in this web tool. Um, so we've been traveling to museums and collecting measurements on a wide range of species and incorporating a wide range of sizes. And we have to have really good quality photographs as well. So we've been traveling to museums, taking those photographs. We wanna make sure we have all sides of a bone represented. So front, back, both sides, and then the top and the bottom so that you have as much information as possible when, you, when it comes to identifying these bones. And so at this point, we're almost at the end of that data collection phase and we're editing all those photographs so that they look very nice and how I'll have the same scale on them and so forth. And at that point, then hopefully in the next couple months, we'll turn everything over to the web developer that we're working with and they can start creating that actual web tool. So you mentioned 28 species that you're starting with. How did you decide on that number and then those particular 28 species that would be included? 
So we um, started off with a list of species that we commonly encounter in North America at this point in forensic cases. And we focus primarily on mammals, but we do have maybe one or two species of birds and maybe one or two turtles in there as well. But we also had to, were limited by the number of species represented in museum collections. We wanted to make sure that we could get the sample sizes we needed to represent those species. And who is taking the photographs? Is it like professional photographers? What kinds of skill set is involved in, in that part of the data collection? Yeah, so actually it's myself and our co-PI, um, Rachel Dunn. So we're not professional photographers, um, but we have a lot of experience, especially in forensics, documenting bones and forensic cases. And what it comes down to is we end up taking thousands and thousands of photographs. So because sometimes you're in the museums and the museums, the lighting is different or sunlight's coming in this way or that way. So we're taking them, you know, with flash, without flash and using different camera settings to make sure that that final product, you can see the morphologies, the differences in the bones that are really important for identifying those species. What has the response been like from the museums when you contact them and tell them about your project and ask to come and photograph their collection? Are they supportive of it? Have you run into any resistance? No, extremely supportive. And actually, it was really funny. Um, when I went to Washington, D.C. to the Smithsonian last time, I was going to collect data on birds and photographs on birds. And lo and behold, they had started a similar project years ago for bird species identification. That just kind of fell through. It didn't get followed through. But they had photographs that they willingly handed over to us um, for this project. So that kind of cut back some of our time there. It's always nice when it works out yeah. like that. Yeah. Beyond knowing that a bone, whether it's human, what information is really gained by knowing what species it is? Can you recall a certain case or certain instance where that provided some valuable information? Yeah, so first of all, I think being able to identify the non-human species, what animal it is, really provides support and confidence to that determination that it's not human. Um, when you tell that to law enforcement, they tend to believe you a little bit more when you're able to say, it's not human, this is a pig, versus just, it's not human, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> so I think that's really important in building that confidence with those agencies. But there are some cases that animal remains might be involved. Um, I've had a forensic case in the past where um, someone had burned a body in their actual fireplace and then burned a cat as well because they thought that it would be disguising the remains in there and we might not be able to differentiate what was human or what was non-human in there. So it's hard to imagine the use because every case is just can be so bizarre and so unique. Um, but there's also wildlife forensics out there, um, right? Say, you know, they have a bird skeleton. Is it a protected bird species or is it just your average species? Did someone happen to kill an eagle? Um, so I think there's ways to expand this even beyond just the human versus non-human realm. For listeners who, like me, may know very little about bones, what are the, the big picture key characteristics that you're looking at when you make that determination initially of human or not human? What are the giveaways? Yeah, so your bones are shaped to be best adapted to what we do. And humans are pretty unique because we're bipeds. We walk around on these two legs. And so for that reason, our bones tend to look a little different than say a quadruped animal walking around because they have to function differently. The weight's going through them differently. And so then all those muscle attachment sites on the bone are gonna be positioned or shaped a little differently to help support those muscles and those actions that you're doing. So a lot of it is just subtle changes 
in shape. So when we talk about morphology, really we're just talking about shape differences, these features that are on the bones. So for example, your femur, your thigh bone, um, you have these greater trochanters on the side of it where some of your glutes are attaching to. And so in us, they're fairly small. In other animals, they go up much higher and might have a little hook to them. And so we're looking for these shape differences to help correspond to what species it is. So are there certain bones then that are more discriminatory, like a rib versus a femur? Yes, so the larger bones um, have more features on them and so they're usually easier to identify. Um, so the long bones, you know, your, your arm bones, your humerus, radius, ulna, femur, um, your tibia. We have a fibula on the side of our leg. It's long, it's skinny. It doesn't have a lot of great features and so it's not as good at doing that. But the other thing I forgot to mention when we're looking at human versus non is one of the first things that goes through my mind is size. So is it bigger than what a human is expected to be? Is it smaller than what a human is expected to be? Is that animal an adult and small um, versus a juvenile and small? And that's really why these measurements actually work when you're trying to separate these species. So do you have a favorite bone? Well, like when, when someone tells you we found some skeletal remains, we want your help, is there something that you're crossing your fingers saying, man, I hope it's a this because that, that would be you know nice and easy? A favorite bone for non-human, I don't think I do. The skull is the easiest because different animals, I mean, they have long snouts, right, compared to us. And the teeth actually tell you a lot about an animal because teeth are formed by what you're eating. So are you an herbivore, an omnivore? So teeth can be really diagnostic. And so skulls tend to be pretty easy. I have elements I dislike, such as ribs. Ribs are harder. There's not as many features on them. Um, when you get to the wrist bones, the carpals and the tarsals, they're harder to identify those non-human species. I can tell they're not human, but beyond that, there's not a lot of pictures out there of these kind of elements. You mentioned that you're initially focusing on North American, specifically North American mammals. Is that right? Mostly mammals, um, a few birds and a few turtles in there as well. How is osteoid curated? Um, are, are you and the co-PIs, the, the sole people deciding and looking at the images that are going in? Do you have any kind of a panel or review board helping you out? Yeah, so right now it's myself and the co-PIs. Um, the students are working on photoshopping and editing those images. Then I go through them as their first review and then I send them to Rachel Dunn, the mammalian paleontologist, to go through them for a second review, make sure everything is correct there before we decide to put them onto that website. So I imagine initially the website will be funded from your NIJ grant. What do you envision as the long-term sustainable plan for this? Will it be a free resource? Will there be a, a pay for use? How is it gonna be funded? The plan right now is that this web tool will remain free. That's the whole idea of it. We want it to be accessible by anyone. Even the public can use it when they find a bone out in the woods there. It's a fairly simple website design, so the cost of maintaining it, um, if there's not large edits that need to be done, aren't very high. And when I wrote this grant, my university, Des Moines University, um, did agree after the grant is done to help maintain that website going forward. How quickly do you think that you'll be able to expand it? So the first thing we want to do is we want to get this up and live with those 28 species. The first time you do something, you're always going to find areas where you can improve and make things better. So our goal is once we can see how that's working the first time and how our species are lining up, and once we start getting feedback from users, like I wish we had this species in there, then we're going to apply for um, other external funding 
The use of this tool extends beyond forensics. Um, so zooarchaeologists or bioarchaeologists, um, they're working with more historic materials, not forensically relevant material, but they're still having to do the same thing, identifying these non-human remains. Um, so we might try for NSF or other grants to expand it to include more species for them as well. Do you anticipate there being like user submissions that staff at museums may send you their photographic collections on their own, you wouldn't have to go and collect them yourself? Or is it, are you going to want to be more hands-on with everything that goes into it? No, less for, work for me, the better. <laughs> um, I mean, the goal is to make this tool as optimal as possible. So on the website, there will be contact information where if anyone's willing to contribute data or photographs or 3D scans, we're going to include 3D scans with this as well, that they can reach out to me. We'll want to verify and make sure um, that what they're sending is valid and so forth, but then we can incorporate that in there. So you mentioned earlier in our conversation here about the potential users of this and how there's so many different applications, but one of them might be like your crime scene investigator who feels empowered by having this tool at their disposal. Are there any concerns about maybe people going a bit beyond their means and making determinations that they are not qualified to make and not calling in the forensic anthropologist when they should? Yes, um, there are definitely going to be big disclaimers on there where if there's any chance in your mind at all that this could be human, please contact your law enforcement. But really the bottom line right now is some investigators, some people in the public that are just searching for bones are already making these decisions on their own from Googling and so forth and using unreliable material. I mean, our biggest fear would be that someone would find a human bow and, and determine that it's not human. So we're going to make sure that human material is well represented in this. Now, if they find a pig bone and they end up saying that it's a cow bone, it probably won't have that much of an impact forensically. But it still does come down to, like, you have to be confident. That final species identification is a visual identification done by that individual. So how does that work with the, the human remains? Do you need any kind of special releases? Or are there privacy concerns associated with having photographic images of human skeletons in there? Yeah, not in this case. Um, so right, all the skeletons are from deceased individuals, and the pictures are all coming from museums. So the museums have received our research proposals and have signed off on them. So the Smithsonian Museum, for example, has the Terry collection there. Um, that's from the early 19, 1900s primarily. Um, and so we're using photographs from those skeletons. So that's an interesting point. Is, is there a large variation based on the time? I know people are getting taller, things are changing. Do you need to have bones from someone from the, the you know, early 1800s versus now? Yeah, so you might have size differences, and when we're, that's going to be incorporated with those measurements, right? So we're taking, well, for the humans, we'll have measurements for over 3,000 individuals um, because I have previous data on humans that will go into this. So those measurements will incorporate recent and larger sized individuals. Now the actual like shape of our femur or thigh bone, for example, really hasn't changed um, because we're still walking around on two legs. We're still the same humans as we were back then. Have you learned anything surprising during this process? Well, I've definitely been able to um, update my skills <laughs> looking at these animal remains, especially when you get to birds and turtles. It's been a few years since I really sat down with those skeletons and go through them. And it's been great to talk to the curators as well, because we had a couple turtle species we decided we'd 
we'd include in there. And that curator in the turtle collection was able to tell us, well, you know, when you expand, you might want to consider X, Y, and Z species because a lot of people eat those turtles. And so maybe not forensically, but even bioarchaeologically, you might encounter them a lot more frequently since people eat those turtles and discard their remains. And have you run into any hurdles? Time. Time is our worst enemy. You have to estimate how much time all of this is going to take when you apply for a grant, <laughs> and things never seem to go the way you want them to. So if you had to do it over again, would you have asked for more time? Yes, definitely okay. for more time. If we had to do it over again, too, I think I would explore further. So a lot of people come up to me and ask me about, will it be an app? And I don't know oh, much about true. making apps and so forth. And that's definitely a direction we'd like to go. That way you can use it out in the field instead of just a website on your phone, for yeah, example. Yeah, like I have one if I see a flower that I want to know. You take a picture of it and within minutes or seconds. Exactly. Um, unfortunately, the way the grants work, right, is you submit for a certain project and you get funding just for that project. So the amount of funding you need to then turn that into an app, you would need to apply for further funding down the road. So is that something you, th you think you would pursue with a further funding proposal? I think so. I think that could really increase the utility of it. Um, I, I think once we can show that this works as a website and as a web tool, it'll be easier to convince people to spend the money to turn it into an application after that. When are you hoping that the osteoid website would go live? What's your best case scenario? Yeah, so we technically we have one more year left in this grant and the ideal situation would be that it would be live at the end of that time. I am fairly confident that we will have a website up by that time, but may still be fine-tuning it um, because the web developer, they're not an anthropologist, so there's a little bit of back and forth between and making sure that things work um, the best that they can. So I, th I think at that point we may still be fine-tuning it. So maybe a year and a half. So sometime spring to summer then of 2021 yeah. is when you'd think to have it ready to? Is this an all-consuming research project this time? Do you have any other research interests that you're pursuing simultaneously? I do. So the thing about being a forensic anthropologist is we have to apply so many different aspects of skeletal anatomy and skeletal research to these cases um, that we tend to have research in a lot of different areas. So I have research you know, on this project looking at human and non-human species identification. Um, I'm also on another NIJ project that just ended um, that was looking at creating new sex and age standards from subadult, from kids' remains. And then really as questions arise, as I'm doing my cases and I come across a question like, oh, I wonder if you could do this or I wonder if you could do that, all these little side projects start up and I've been trying to get students involved in those and just got to follow them through to the end. In your presentation, you mentioned that um, the DFA results are going to be presented at AAPA. I don't know what either of those acronyms are. Can no you, problem. Could you uh, <laughs> spell that out for me? So DFA stands for Discriminant Function Analysis. And so with that metric data, um, I've already run some preliminary analyses. I want to see how well, just these simple, all they are are lengths and breadths of bone. So that you, me, anybody can take these lengths and breadths. All you need is a ruler, right, to take these measurements. And so we're taking 54 measurements per specimen. And at this point, we have over 1,000 specimens in there. And what I want to see is, based on those measurements, running some stats on them, statistics on them, can a computer, can the statistics tell me what species this belongs to? I have a bone here, I have a length, and I have two breadths. 
tell me what species it is. And that's what the discriminant function analysis does. It takes these measurements into account and it says, how well can I classify the correct species based on these measurements? Um, and what we're finding, I tested it on 21 different species so far and they're all medium to large size mammals. Um, so none of the small rabbits or anything like that. And we had 652 specimens in there. And if you use the humerus or femur and just a couple measurements, we're getting over 90% correct on the species identification out of those 21 species. So it's just a couple measurements really can help you narrow down what species that may be. And so we're presenting those results at AAPA, which is the American Association of Physical Anthropology. Um, a lot of forensic anthropologists also belong to this association, and they have their annual meeting in April, actually back here in LA. I'm sorry, I'm stuck on the, the, the DFA results that you were mentioning there. Do you need to know what bone it is you're looking at when you put, do you have to say this is measurements of a humerus? Yes, but that's actually easier than you think. Um, I've tested this out on undergrads with no experience and also medical students before they've had any kind of skeletal anatomy. And if you're given a picture or a couple pictures of what a femur, a thigh bone looks like, and you have a bone in your hand, it's easy to match up and say this is a femur or this is a humerus. In general, even though we're, we have these subtle differences in the shapes and sizes, a femur looks like a femur that looks like a femur across most taxa. We're running near the end of our time together. Are there any other final thoughts or things we didn't discuss that you wanted to mention? Yeah, the one thing I only briefly mentioned was the 3D scans. So as part of this project, I also have 3D scanners and we are making 3D models of these animal bones. And we're putting them on Morphosource. It's a free website that you can download these models that can handle the size of these models. So you could potentially, if you think you have, you know, a raccoon humerus, you can pull up the 3D model and rotate it and actually look at what it looks like or even download it and 3D print it and create your own skeletal collection as well. Then you don't have to pay $1,000 for a pig skeleton. You could download exactly, and print your own. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. All right, well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Heather Garvin, for sitting down with Just Science to discuss her NIJ-funded grant. So thank you, Dr. Garvin. Thank you for having me. I'd also like to thank you, the listener, for tuning in today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, be sure to like and follow Just Science on your podcast platform of choice. And for more information on today's topic and resources in the forensic field, visit ForensicCOE.org. I'm Megan Grabenauer, and this has been another episode of Just Science. In the next episode, Just Science sits down with Dr. Carl Wolf from the Medical College of Virginia Hospitals. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Mm -hmm.